Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much for these women who've gathered, who have literally many of them walked through what feels like rivers out, outside <laughs> to get here um, in our sop and wet shoes. But Lord, we are so happy to be here um, because, uh, because your word is um, it's a feast and we're hungry and we need to hear from you. We need to be reminded of who you are. We need to uh, be reassured that you are on the throne, that this world is your world, and that you are king, our, our, our savior is king over all. And I pray that tonight as we walk through these chapters, that those truths would become just so clear once again. Um, and Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to whatever it is that you desire to speak to each one of us. I pray that our, our character, um, our desires, our passions would be formed and shaped and molded by your word um, as, as, as we sit here tonight. And uh, we just thank you so much for all that you are going to teach us and do among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, there's a lot to cover tonight, so I'm going to jump right in. And um, if your notes are a little bit longer than usual, and you'll notice that they're extremely detailed at the beginning, and then they're extremely not detailed <laughs> uh, toward, toward the end. Um, I want to talk about Babylon. Babylon showed up in your reading a lot this week. And I want to talk about Babylon in the storyline of the Bible because I think it was our first week together. I shared um, that illustration I heard from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. He talked about how there are certain words in the Bible that are like hyperlinked words, just like when you're on a web page and a word, you can tell it's highlighted or it's bolded. And if you click on that word, it's going to send you to another web page and then you, it's going to have hyperlinks and you click on those hyperlinks and it's it's all connected. That's what the internet is. There's all of these things that are connected to all of these other things. And there are certain words in the Bible that work that way as well. And the biblical authors use those words very intentionally in order to connect their writings with other authors of Scripture's writings. And so we've, we've seen some of those. The one that comes to my mind right now is the word seed. We've talked about how the word seed, starting way back in, in the first couple chapters of Genesis um, becomes a very prominent, very important word throughout the entire Bible. And so Babylon is another one of those words. It's a hyperlinked word. We see it show up very early in the storyline of Scripture. It is mentioned over and over again through, throughout Scripture, and it's mentioned in the book of Revelation as well. And so I want to give us kind of a broad sweeping um, category for Babylon and, and what it is and how, how it's worked into the whole of Scripture, because it's really going to help us understand the role of Babylon in our chapters that we're looking at tonight, all right? So had I not written all of this out for you, anybody in your chairs that's like me, your, your hand would have fallen off because you love this stuff. Like, I love this stuff. I love tracing themes throughout the whole of the Bible and having those aha moments. You're like, wow, that's beautiful. That's amazing. Um, so I just wanted you to be able to sit and enjoy. And so I tried to write out as much of it as I could so that you're not frantically jotting down notes. All right. So Babylon and the storyline of the Bible. We're going to start at the beginning, Genesis chapter one and two. 
Uh, God creates an amazing world. He appoints his image bearers, humans, to rule it on his behalf. All right? So, yay, such a great beginning. But of course, we hit Genesis chapter 3. There is a very significant plot twist. Uh, An evil figure enters the story in the form of a serpent. Adam and Eve rebel against God by choosing to define good and evil on their own terms. They are immediately at odds with God. They are at odds with each other. And they are at odds with nature. So like all the harmony that God had established is breaking down. So they are exiled from Eden. Now, when any of us, I I would say probably all of us would fall into this category. When we think of the fall, which is actually not the best term, I really wish, I don't know, it was probably a long, long time ago, people started calling this the fall of man. It really should be the rebellion of man, because I think a fall is very passive, right? A rebellion is more of an active defiance. And that's really what's going on there. It's a more, it's a rebellion. They are choosing to define good and evil on their own terms. So anyway, when we think of the fall or we think of re- rebellion, we, we, we tend to only think of Genesis chapter 3. If someone were to come up to you on the street and say, where's the, where's the story of the fall? You'd say, well, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent and the apple and, and all of that, right? Uh, but the, the foundational account of human rebellion, what we would call the fall narrative and its consequences, isn't just Genesis chapter 3. We are intended to see it as Genesis chapter 3 through 11. That's when we think of the fall, when we think of the, the, the initial human rebellion, Genesis 3 through 11, that whole chunk is what we should have in view. There's this cascade of terrible stories. They kind of get worse and worse. It builds and builds. And we are supposed to link all those stories together. And then we get to Genesis 11 and we're like, whoa. It's so bad. You know, that's kind of the, the picture that, we are, that we're supposed to walk away with. So let's go ahead. We are at Genesis 3. Let's get to Genesis 11. So in Genesis 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. All right, you might be a little bit familiar with that story. Just like his parents, Cain was faced with the choice to define good and evil on God's terms or his own terms. <clears throat> so he was hated his brother, angry with his brother, and um, in Genesis 4, 6, the Lord said to Cain, we have God speaking, we have God laying things out. There's actually a lot of parallels between the Cain and Abel story and the Adam and Eve story. But the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, by God's definition, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, if you choose to define good and evil on your own terms, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. All right, so again, let's think of this in terms of Genesis chapter 3. So the evil force from Genesis chapter 3, that serpent, is still at work. But here, it's not called a serpent. It's given a much more um, abstract term. It's the more abstract concept of sin, right? So sin is crouching at your door. Same force, same evil, same enemy, but it's given a more abstract name. It's interesting that animal language is still used. It's crouching at your door. It's crouching like a, like a tiger ready to pounce. And like his parent, Cain chooses to define good and evil on his own terms. He kills his brother Abel, and like his parents, he is then exiled. 
Um, chapter 4, verse 16 says, Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Nod means, um, let's see, wandering or exile. So Cain heads toward Nod. He builds a city. Um, they, there's technological advancements. We see that there's medical, uh, medical workers, uh, metal working that takes place there. There's music there, so there's culture. But it's also a place full of violence. And this violence is epitomized by a descendant of Cain named Lamech, who doesn't just commit violence, but he actually celebrates it. He sings a song about it to his wives that he took, um, and he just like, just celebrates killing. Uh, so that's kind of, you see where it's starting, to, it's, it's continuing to spiral down. What started in Genesis 3 is it's cascading into something even more terrible. Now, the next major movement in the story is in chapter 6. We have this really weird passage about the sons of God taking wives from the daughters of men. And then we have this reference to the Nephilim, and you're like, what is going on? And there's so many different opinions as to who these sons of God are, whether you believe they are the ungodly line of Seth or rebellious angels or ungodly kings of the day. The point is, that they committed a violent act in taking women, and then they continued to perpetuate more violence. So there's violence that leads to even more violence. Things are really amping up. Oppression and death of the innocent is spiraling out of control. So we should not be super surprised when we get to the part of chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9, where we have the flood. Right? God sends the flood, and then there is this period of recreation after the flood. A lot of the same kind of language after the flood that you saw in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, there's a renewed uh, call to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, all of those things. Unfortunately, you find out really fast, good old righteous Noah still has sin in his heart, right? Like sin... And the human heart was not washed away by the flood. It is still alive and well. And so you're like, okay, here we go again. You know, so here we are. Genesis 10 is a table of nations. All right, so it's kind of, um, if you ever read, my husband loves to read these fantasy books, these books with like dragons and things in them. And he really is cool. He's a great guy. That makes him sound really weird. He's not that weird. But anyway, at the beginning of these books, there's always this map because this, these authors have created these entire worlds. And so you have, you have a map because it's an imaginary world and you don't know anything about it. So you kind of need a map. And Genesis 10 is kind of like that. It's, it's the map of, of the world at that time. What's interesting is what, what is depicted in Genesis 10 is something that takes place after the, the peoples of the world are scattered. Well, where does the scattering take place? Well, that doesn't take place until Genesis 11. So those two chapters are not in chronological order. And that's weird. I mean, you're like, that doesn't make you, why? Why would the author, Moses, decide to do the table of nations and then tell us the story about how all the peoples are scattered? Well, what the author is doing is he is um, bringing the whole story to a climax. And the climax of the entire narrative from Genesis chapter 1 
all the way through like the first segment of, of the book of Genesis is Genesis 11. It's like, dun, 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 here we are. This is what we've been working toward. Um, and it is the story of Babel, right? So at this point, you would expect Genesis 11 to be about violence and murder that's completely gone rogue, but it's not. It's about this building project. And at first, you're kind of like, oh, wah, wah. You know, like, it's just like, okay, people are building a tower, you know? Um, but when you really re- read on, oh, I think we're good. Um, humanity is using technology, which is inherently not evil in and of itself, right? <clears throat> They're using technology. They've got bricks for the first time. They have tar. And so they're using this for a very specific purpose, which is given to us in Genesis 11:4. It says, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky or the heavens. Now, we live in a very post-Christian um, world. So for people today, when we think of the sky, we think of meteorology, right? Like it's just science. It's just moisture and whatever else up there. It's, it's very like, we don't think, we don't necessarily give a spiritual um, connection. But for the people then, that, that, that the sky, the, he, the heavens was the place of the gods, right? So this is a very, there's a lot of worship overtones here, a lot of spiritual overtones here. So they're building this tower with its top to go up to the heavens. And, and you think, oh, they want to be closer to God. No, they don't. Let's make a name for ourselves. No, they want to be God. <laughs> Let's make a name for ourselves, they, see. Other, they say. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So they want to be all-powerful. They want to be up high. They want to be all night. They, all, they want to be God, basically. So they too are defining good and evil on their own terms, just like Adam and Eve did, just like Cain did, just like all of the ones in succession have done. Um, and it ends with an entire civilization of humans doing. Um, so Genesis 3 starts with individuals defining good and evil on their own terms. Genesis 11, you have an entire civilization of humans defining good and evil on their own terms, right? Now, this civilization is called Babel, which is a little unfortunate. And I'm sure translators, I mean, really smart guys get together, and hopefully girls too. I hope there's girls on these translation teams. There should be more girl scholars. Anyway, um, they get together and they're very careful to, to like, how are we, what English words are we going to use? And they use the word Babel in Genesis 11. Interestingly enough, every other time that same Hebrew word is translated in the entire Hebrew Bible, it's translated into English as Babylon. Same word. And I think it would actually help us a lot if they had translate, if they would translate the word Babylon in Genesis 3 and maybe give us a footnote and say it's actually the word Babel. Um, because this is the same place, same place that, we're gonna, that, that we see as the, story, as the story continues on. So you say, where did Babylon start? Genesis chapter 11. Now, what's really important for us to understand is that Babylon is an actual place, an actual place. In Genesis 11, it's an actual place in Isaiah's day. All right, it's an actual place. Um, let's see, I keep losing my, 
I want to get this right. So it's an actual place, but it's also the, the I'm going to use the word archetypal. I know that's really big. Kind of think archetype, icon, symbol. Symbol doesn't really fully get it, but you can think symbol, archetypal, symbolic, um, climax of humanity's rebellion against God in the Genesis narrative. So what starts in Genesis 3 really comes to a head in Genesis 11. And so now you don't just have a couple people rebelling against God. You have the entire world rebelling against God. So it just amps up throughout. Now, throughout the entire Bible, Babylon remains an archetype of collective human evil, collective human pride, collective human desire for autonomy and self-exaltation. There is the nation of Babylon, and then there is the spirit of Babylon. And so our idea of the fall, the fall of man, needs to have both individual, personal. We think of, we tend to think on a very, we're Americans, we think individual, personal. That's all we think about almost. That each one of us are fallen sinners. But the, the, the narrative, the storyline of the Bible also has a very strong um, strong connection with the fact that a humanity as a whole, entire civilizations, entire nations are fallen as well. And so we need to make sure whatever, when we think about the fall, when we think about sin, it's not just on an individual basis, but also on a very large scale. And that's important because when Isaiah is making connections between Babylon and in the spirit of Babylon, it's, it's, it affects individuals, but it's, he's thinking very large scale, right? All right, chapter 12. So we move from chapter 11 to chapter 12. Big split in the book. You get in, now you're getting into the patriarchs. But here's the connection. God calls Abram and Sarai out of, guess where? Babylon. He calls them out of Babylon. And then you fast forward a few hundred years, and Abraham's descendants, Israel, uh, who we're reading about now, they end up exiled in, guess where? Babylon. So there's a sense in which they start in Babylon and they end in Babylon. So you have this big narrative arc that goes from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of 2 Kings that begins in Babylon and ends in Babylon. So Babylon's really important in the storyline of the Bible, and that's why you see all these authors mentioning it all the time. Well, it's, it's you know, a really significant part of the overall storyline. Now, in 539 BC, we have an exact specific date. Cyrus conquers Babylon. It takes a little time for it to completely disappear, but... Um, it's, it's gone. It's gone as a nation. It's gone as what we would think of as a place. But Babylon, the biblical archetype or icon or symbol of human rebellion, lives on. And it lives on all the way into the New Testament. In fact, both Peter and John specifically refer to Rome as the Babylon of their day. They don't even use the name Rome. They use the name Babylon. They're making those connections. 
Um, and for all of these New Testament authors, oh, Paul does that as well, by the way. And for all of these authors, the fall of Rome, interestingly, was very much in their minds connected with the um, ultimate eschatological, it's a big word, just means end times, eschatological destruction of evil, just like for Isaiah, the fall of Babylon, as you saw in your reading this week, is connected with the ultimate end times destruction of evil. So if, you're, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, in chapters 16 through 18 records the ultimate fall of, guess what word he uses over and over and over, Babylon, followed by, immediately followed by, in chapter 19, the second coming of Christ. And of course, we know chapters 20 and 21 describe the new, the new heaven and the new earth. So even when John is, gets his vision of the end of all things, Babylon, the archetype, which in his mind, he's probably thinking Rome, but ultimately it's, it's the spirit of Babylon, this human rebellion, this human pride, this human evil, this human self-exaltation is going to be put down and put away um, forever and ever. And then Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom on this earth. Now, how does this play into the day of the Lord? Well, for Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets, as well as Paul and Peter and John, on a macro level, the day, it's the day when all the junk is done, done with, right? All of, the, all of the evil is going to be confronted. It's going to be brought to justice by God once for all. But they're also thinking on a more micro level, there's a lot of interim fulfillments of this. You can kind of think of it as there's a lot of little d days of the Lord. When the actual nation of Assyria fell, when the nation of Babylon fell, when, uh, when the Egyptians, when, when the sea comes over the Egyptians, that would be a little d day of the Lord, right? Anytime this evil is vanquished, right, the, these evil nations are, are done in, those are little d days of the Lord. And the authors of Scripture will connect them to the ultimate big D day of the Lord that we think of, we think of the book of Revelation, you know, all of that stuff coming, coming, to, coming to pass. So the same justice that God will one day bring on the whole world breaks through in our time. And, and so those are also kind of little D days of the Lord. Now, what, <laughs> what makes it so tricky for us, I actually got about three text messages this week, like, what's the deal? Is it Babylon, the actual Babylon, or is it Babylon, is he talking about the end times, or is he talking about his day? Like, what, what is happening here? And the answer is truly both, and. Like, he, he, the biblical authors kind of think of it as a, well, when I went to, I went to Argentina with, um, with a friend, not like a few years ago now, and we did a lot of hiking in, um, in the kind of the foothills, mountains there in Argentina, and lots of individual hikes. And then at the end, we got to go to this place where you took a ski lift really high, and you got to look out and see the entire mountain range there in, in Bariloche, the, the area of, of Argentina, and even like so far beyond. You were so high, you could see all of it. And... Um, it was interesting because we could actually place like, oh, that's where we hiked that day. And then we're like, oh my gosh, we're like all the way over there the other day. We, did, we didn't realize it. But, but when you just stood back, it, it just all looked like the same mountain range. Now, that mountain might be hundreds of miles away from that mountain. If you were to get in the foothills and you were to get really on site, you would realize how far away they are. But when you're looking at it like one big landscape, 
just all looks connected. And so the authors of Scripture, Isaiah, and really all of them, their mindset was they're always looking from way up high. And so you have the conquest of Babylon, and you have the conquest of Assyria. You also have the ultimate conquest of evil. But for these authors, they're all in the same landscape. Now, if you want to get into the weeds of that, you realize, well, the fall of the actual nation Babylon is like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years separated from the ultimate fall of the spirit of Babylon. But when Isaiah is talking about it, same landscape, right? And so we don't, we don't like to think that way. I'm like, I want to talk to me about this and then talk to me about this. And could you please clearly label and tell me which one you're talking about? But they don't do that. That's not the way they think. Like, In Isaiah's mind, everything that's happening in his world is related to the big D, day of the Lord. Everything. Everything. It's all one in the same same landscape. And so that's why if you struggled this week, which which one is he talking about? He probably, that's what he wanted you to do. He like wanted us to do that. He wanted us to wonder which one are you talking about? And he would say, yes, both. Because they're connected because this is all part of God's plan, right? So that's kind of what is, um, what's, going, what's going on here. From a big picture perspective, the day of the Lord, big D, is essentially, it's basically inaugurated on Good Friday when Jesus dies on the cross. That's the most kingly thing that he has or will ever do, die on the cross. That's why it's such a scandal. Kings don't die on crosses, you guys. This one does, and that's how he like, defeats the greatest enemy that man has ever known, right? So it's inaugurated there, and then it will be finished. It will be brought to fulfillment um, as Jesus returns and establishes the new heaven and the new earth. So if you're thinking about timeline, now you're like, well, what about what happens in between Good Friday and his second coming? Good luck. It is not super clear. So you figure it out. You decide what you want to believe. Um, Anybody that tells you they know, they don't. Okay. Um, and that brings us to, now we have clues. We don't want to discount those, but hold it with a loose hand, whatever your view is. All right, that brings us to Isaiah chapter 13, which is what you came here to hear about. All right. Uh, we have this um, roll call of nations, pretty much. This series of pronouncements or judgment oracles against some of the nations that are surrounding Israel, and I'm sure you noticed, Israel and Judah are also included in these judgment oracles. So there's some bad stuff that they have to deal with as well, not just the nations around them. All right, so the principle that we see here in, and basically this week's reading, 13 through 23, is one extended poem, and then 24 through 27 is another extended poem. So they're meant to be seen I mean, they relate to each other, but, but they're two separate sections. All right, so the first poem, 13 through 23, here's what, here's what we see. If you're wanting like a main overarching summary truth, we see that Yahweh is God, not just of Israel. We've been focusing a lot on Israel so far, but Isaiah wants to make the point. He's God, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. So all these other nations surrounding Israel, he's God of them too whether they want to acknowledge him or not, all right? These chapters seek to assure the reader that the Lord is really, truly ruling all of history 
and guiding it to its predetermined end, which is the glory of God and the good of his people. And no matter what happens, that is the end to which God is moving everything toward. All right? Now, at the time, and we need to keep reminding ourselves, at the time Isaiah is writing these things, everything looked like a terrifying mess. They did not have newspapers or news feeds or anything back then, but if they did, they would be terribly depressing. All right? The, um, the news headlines of that day would not have been good, but to the eye of faith, everything, everything is in the hand of God. All right? Even those really, really bad headlines is in the hand of God. And so that is one truth. This, this extended poem is really hitting home. All right, the first nation to be called out is Babylon. So we are going to pick up in chapter 13. Uh, let's see, verse 1. A pronouncement concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. And then skip down to verse 6. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Is that big D day of the Lord, little D day of the Lord? Well, he's talking about a little D day of the Lord when Babylon is actually going to be judged. The nation is going to come to nothing. Do you think he has big D day of the Lord in mind when he's talking about that as well? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. Um, For the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak and every man will lose heart. They'll be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury, burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shine. So there's like this decreation was the first thing that we see in creation. Light was gone. So we... We are going backwards here. Verse 12, I will make, or verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their iniquities. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of tyrants. So verse 11 is important because it it reminds us that this makes sense, what God is doing. God is acting in his justice because Babylon here has, it's evil, it's full of iniquity, it, it, it's full of pride and arrogance, the insolence of the, it's a tyrannical um, rule that has been taking place here. Now I want you to skip forward, um, let's see, where do I want to pick up? All right, look at verse 16. I want to read this because I'm sure a lot of you are like, ooh, I don't, that's hard to read, and I want to talk about that. Verse 16, their children will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be looted, and their wives raped. Look, I'm stirring up the Medes against them who cannot be bought off with silver and who have no desire for gold. So big, mighty Babylon who could pay off whoever they wanted, not this time, not this time. So um, I want to talk about the babies being dashed on rocks and the women's being raped. Because this whole section started with him twice saying, what I'm about to describe to you is the day of who? The Lord. It's the day of the Lord. And so how could this be the day of the Lord when it involves killing babies and raping women? 
I'm sure that is a question. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that thought of that. But I was like, this is horrible. And so how do we reconcile that? Um, to understand what's happening here, or any passages like this, where you see God just, I mean, bringing such horrifying things on these, these rebellious nations, um, we need to have a basic understanding of the doctrine of common grace. Now, I grew up in church my whole entire life. I didn't hear about the doctrine of common grace. I mean, I heard about it, but I didn't know that I was hearing about it until I was in seminary. And it was just so, I wouldn't say life-changing, but like it made so many things make sense for me when I finally understood the doctrine of common grace. I'm going to give a little mini lesson because it's very applicable to, to passages like this. Um, common grace is the generosity or the grace of God bestowed commonly on everyone. It's bestowed on all of humanity, regardless of their spiritual condition. Um, and, and a lot of times you'll read how this is kind of divided into to three aspects. So the first aspect of common grace would be the fact that God shows favor to all his creatures. So it's just this very general display of favor. We see in Psalm 145, 9, says God is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Matthew 5.45 says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So let's say you've got two farmers with two fields. One farmer loves the Lord. One farmer hates the Lord. The rain's not just falling on the farm with the guy that loves Jesus. Falling on both farms. And he's allowing both farms to produce fruit and vegetables and all those things. That's the picture we're given. Um, That's common grace. Luke 6.35 says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. We say it all the time. God is, God is so kind to even, even people that don't acknowledge him at all. And, that, and that, that's common grace. Um, another aspect of common grace, and this is very important for what understanding our text here, is that God restrains. So not only is God bestowing, but God is restraining sin in the lives of individuals and societies. There's so many examples of this in Scripture where sin could have just taken over full-blown, wreaked horrible destruction, and God intervenes. And, and he's always doing that. As bad as things get, common grace means that they're never as bad as they could have been. He's constantly restraining sin in people's lives and in our world. Uh, and then the th- a third aspect of common grace is that even unregenerate people, in spite of their total depravity— are able to do good to others. And we all know people who, I mean, they're not just like kind of passively lost, like, eh, I don't know about Jesus, but they're like, I know about Jesus, I don't want it. And they're, they're like doing great things in the world. They really are. Like they're beautiful humans doing beautiful things, creating beauty, adding to human flourishing, doing so many wonderful things. What is that? That is common grace. It's common grace. They're, they're able to be generous and kind and, and do the wonderful things they do because they're experiencing an aspect of the grace of God that is common to humanity. Now, why do I mention common grace here? Well, it's grace, meaning that God doesn't owe it to humanity to bless them and restrain their sin and enable them to do good to others. We have done nothing to deserve this whatsoever. So at any time, God is well within his rights and within his justice and within his righteousness to withhold this common grace 
And, and again, still maintain his justice. He's completely just in doing so. And when God withholds his common grace, when he pulls back, humans will always, without fail, act out what we read about in this passage. It's really important for us to understand God is not dashing babies on rocks. God is simply pulling back on his work of restraining evil. And the stuff described here is what humans do to each other when their sin is unrestrained. So if your concept of God's sovereignty in things like this is like God as a puppet master forcing humans against their will to commit these atrocities, then you do not have a proper biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God. All God has to do for all hell to break loose in the world is to hand unbelieving humanity over to the desires of their hearts because humans want to do what humans want to do apart from the regenerating work of God's spirit. And when he does, sin will take the stage and the as the total destroyer that it always was. See, we mess, we were like, eh, sin, yeah, I gossiped, or I, I don't know, I bought a shirt I shouldn't have bought, or whatever. No, sin, sin, full-blown, is Isaiah 13. That's what human beings are capable of, and will do, if God is not restraining it, right? And so that's how we need to, that's the kind of category we need to have for stuff like this. We've got to understand common grace, and we've also got to understand that God is fully just in, in, in pulling back on that. And when he does, this is what we've got. All right? Hopefully that's helpful to you, because passages like this are hard. They're really hard. Um, all right, well, let's move on. Let's go to chapter 14. Let's see, I need to cut a little bit of this. All right, so in chapter 14, we're still, we're still focusing on Babylon, but it shifts to specifically to the king of Babylon, um, look at, okay, look at verse 12. He says, the king of Babylon is a shining morning star. How you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you've been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I'll make myself Right here is the big problem. <laughs> like the Most High, I am going to be God. So we have the spirit of Babel from all the way back in Genesis 11 represented now in the king of Babylon, right? But, <laughs> but you think that, but you're going to be brought down to Sheol in the deepest regions of the pit. Now, I have sometimes heard this passage taught as the fall of Satan, um, because there's a very, in, in Luke 10, 18, Jesus mentions Satan falling from heaven, but he does not pick up the language of this passage. There's no direct allusion. So we should take it at face value. Isaiah says it's about the king, the king of Babylon. At any rate, the takeaway is this. God will have no rivals. He will have no rivals. The very best intentions of the most powerful people in the world can be reduced to nothing wherever and whenever God wants to. And that, that's like, nobody would believe oh, the king of Babylon, this can happen to the king of Babylon. Oh yeah, because God can do whatever he wants with whoever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, right? 
And so that's kind of the point that we see here. Now, if we were to read on, and we need to kind of skip ahead, in verse, um, oh, the end of chapter 14, so powerful, he talks about how Assyria will be destroyed. And we've talked about the two big enemies of God's people in the book of Isaiah, Assyria and Babylon. Well, Babylon's way out in the future, you guys. Assyria is like breathing down their necks. Assyria is the one that like they can see. He, that's the, the country that's showing up on their really depressing news headlines at the moment. And it's, it's so, in verse 24, he says, the Lord of armies has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned, so it will happen. So he's emphasizing here the sovereignty of God over the nations, including Assyria. He said, I will break Assyria in my land. I will tread him down on my mountain. When his yoke will be taken from them, this, and his burden will be removed from their shoulders, this is the plan prepared. Now, he could have just said this is the plan. When you have a plan, it's already implied that you prepared it. But no, he's like emphasizing, this is a plan prepared, not just for Assyria, but for the whole earth. And this is the hand stretched out against all the nations. The Lord of armies himself has planned it. Therefore, really important question, who can stand in its way? And what's the answer? Nobody. Nobody. It is his hand that is outstretched. Who can turn it back? What is the answer? Who can turn the hand of God back? Nobody. And that's what I say. And it's really easy for us to think about, oh yeah, for Isaiah and Assyria, and they were destroyed. We get to look back on this, and we know that Israel was destroyed. God, God did what he said he was going to do, and we're like, oh yeah, like nobody can turn back God's hand. But when it's your life that's being wrecked, when it's, when it's your nation that's under attack, when, when you're the one that, like, living in a, a dumpster fire of a pandemic, right? I mean, that kind of takes on a different tone. And our, our, we might not be so ready to say, oh, yeah, God's planet, nobody can turn it back. But is it any less true? No. The plans of God don't fail. The plans of God don't fail. And that's what Isaiah is trying to remind his people over and over. The plans of God don't fail. I know it looks like they do. I know it looks like they're failing right now. <laughs> but the plans of God don't fail. And if he says it, it's going to happen. If, he, if his strong arm is in it, there ain't nobody that's, that's powerful enough to turn it back. And so that is a good word for every single one of us, I think every single day. Because it sure doesn't look all the time like God's plans are coming to pass. But they are. They are. Um, key takeaway there is that God's plans cannot be thwarted. All right, so we are not going to spend time in chapter 19. I did ask you a lot of questions about that in your homework, so hopefully you really got to bask in the beauty of, <laughs> you have all this judgment pronounced on Egypt, who is another Babylon in scripture, and then, so you have Egypt as a Babylon, Assyria as a Babylon, but then at the end of chapter 19, the picture we get is of them being brought in to the New Jerusalem as well. There's a remnant that's going to come from even the enemies of God that are going to turn and be brought in. It's Gentile inclusion in, into the people of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. I wish we had time um, to really spend in it tonight. The key truth there would be that amidst all the destruction, there is still hope for Gentile nations. And we are going to, um, we're going to see that very clearly in the next section. All right, so that brings us to, let's see, how am I doing on time? 
All right, I'm going to work right up to our time probably. This is just, there's a lot to get through tonight. Um, but this particular section of the, the poem is just so beautiful. I wouldn't think you would mind, but maybe you're like, mm, I don't know. I love this stuff. I think you do too. You look interested. You're faking it really well if you're not. All right. So we are going to jump into poem number two. So we had poem number one was all the pronouncements against all the nations. The point of those was that Yahweh is God, not just over Israel, but over the whole world. All right. But he's working everything for his glory and the good of his people, which includes both Israel. And we get little hints that Gentiles are going to be brought in as well. We call that Israel plus Gentiles. We call that the church. So Isaiah doesn't use that word, but he's constantly telling us about it. It's beautiful in really beautiful language. And we're going to see it again in, um, in this poem. All right. So this is essentially the tale of two cities. And I'm going to point out to you the city language. So we have one city that is ruined. It is brought to absolute destruction. And that would be a city represented by the spirit of Babylon, humanity and rebellion against God. He is going to take care of that. All right. And then we have another city, which is um, not, it's not called a city as directly. It's called Jerusalem. It's called um, Mount Zion, and I think, may, I think it might be called the Holy City uh, at least once, but it's not, not as much city language there, um, more Mount Zion language. So I want you to be, as I'm going to read through, I'm going to point it out to you, but be looking for the contrast that's drawn between these two cities. All right, 24 verse 1. Look, there's our word, behold, Isaiah loves this word. Look, the Lord is stripping the earth bare and making it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And look, everybody, no, nobody gets a pass. People and priest, servant and master, female servant and mistress, buyer and seller, lender and borrower, creditor and debtor. The earth will be stripped. He repeats it. He repeats that language completely bare. It's going to be a total desolation. It will be totally plundered. And then when anything ends with this, it's like, it's going to happen. For the Lord has spoken the message. Dun, 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 right? Like, that should like, really be a sobering like, ending to a statement. All right, 24 verse 4. It says, The earth mourns and withers. The world wastes away and withers. The exalted people of the earth. Remember, there's lots of spatial language. We have humans thinking that they're way up here. But what's going to happen? They're going to waste away. And God is going to say, No, that is my spot in only my spot, and, and, and it's going to be reversed again. Verse 5, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed teachings. They have overstepped decrees, and they have broken the permanent covenant. Again, we have these reminders throughout as why is God doing this, and why is God just in doing this? Because the people have rebelled. Verse 6, therefore a curse has consumed the earth and its inhabitants have become guilty. The earth's inhabitants have been burned. Only a few survive. Remember that. All right, that is, in this context, very depressing. Only a few survive. But those few, we're going to see them. They're going to come back in a few lines of the poem. So, so remember those people, the survivors. Verse 7, the new wine Mourns, the vine withers, all the Krausers now groan. I want you to think back to one through five. And you, you, 
Isaiah paints this picture of, of Judah as being, they are party people. Do you remember all that party language? They liked their beer. They liked their wine. They drank a lot of it. They were constantly, it's like, let's live it up, right? Well, look what happens to their partying. Verse eight, the joyful tambourine has ceased. The noise of the jubilant has stopped. The joyful lyre has ceased. They no longer sing and drink wine. Beer is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is shattered. Every house is closed to entry. The streets, they cry for wine. Look at this. And I don't know what your translation says. Mine says, all joy grows dark. The earth's rejoicing goes into exile. It's gone. Only desolation remains in this city. There's our city language. Its gate has collapsed to ruins, for this is how it will be on the earth. Among the nations, like a harvested olive tree, like a gleaning after a grape harvest. All right, this is where I want you to think about those survivors. So we have the the mention of only a few survive, and then we have a mention of gleanings. So almost everything's going to be wiped away. But there's going to be a few pieces that kind of fall on the ground. You can gather them and scoop them up, the gleanings. This is significant because Isaiah, of course, the master of unexpected hope, is now going to have these gleanings, these survivors, this remnant talk. They start talking in the next line of the poem, and this is what they say. Verse 14, they raise their voices and they sing out. They proclaim in the west the majesty of the Lord. Therefore, in the east, the honor of the Lord. In the coasts and the islands of the west, honor the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs, the splendor of the righteous one. So Isaiah has been focused on the whole earth. So he's talking about all these Gentile nations outside of Israel, completely wiped out, but there's a few survivors. And what do those few survivors do? They praise God the Lord, and they proclaim the majesty of the Lord. And so they are going to be included in what God is going to do in the established city of Mount Zion. All right? So it's really beautiful what he's doing there. Doesn't last long, though, because Isaiah only gives us little blips of hope here, right? (laughs) Gets depressing again, second part of verse 16, but I said... I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, the treacherous act treacherously, the treacherous deal very treacherously, panic, pit, and trap await you who dwell on the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of panic will fall into a pit. Whoever escapes from the pit will be caught in a trap. For the floodgates on high are opened and the foundations of the earth are shaken. And look at this language here. The earth is completely devastated. The earth is split open. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunkard and sways like a hut. And here's another reminder as to why God is doing this. Earth's rebellion weighs it down and it falls never to rise again. And on that day, the Lord will punish the army of the heights in the heights and the kings of the ground on the ground. And they'll be gathered together like prisoners in a pit and they will be confined to a dungeon. After many days, they will be punished. So what is God doing here? He is rounding up all of the rebel kings. And he is going to put them away. 
going to put them away. And verse 23, the moon will be put to shame and the sun disgraced. I don't know if you've looked at the sun lately. It's pretty bright. There's not many things that could make the sun look bad or make the sun look like a puny little light. What in the world is going to disgrace the sun? Well, this is what's going to disgrace the sun. The Lord of armies is going to reign as king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and he will display his glory in the presence of his elders. Now that remnant that I talked about, the survivors, the Gentile survivors, they are now making their way to Mount Zion. There's a pilgrimage happening. And in verse 25, verse 1, they finally arrive and they start to speak again. And they say, Lord, you are my God. And I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have turned the city, there's another city reference, into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will honor you. The cities of violent nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storms and shade from the heat. What a beautiful, glorious description of salvation. And they've experienced it. They've experienced it. They're the survivors. They're the remnant. They're the ones that have come through the judgment. In verse 6, we finally get, start to get a picture of the established city. So we've seen a pretty bad picture of the ruined city. Now we get the established city, which is Mount Zion, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples. So is it just for the Israelites? Is it just for, for people of Jewish descent? No. And we're not surprised by this, right? Because we already saw this back in chapter 2, this Gentile inclusion. So he's going to prepare for all the peoples a feast, of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cups of choice meat. It's the Wagyu beef, you guys. The really expensive cut at Burns Steakhouse and Charlie's Steakhouse. And that's what, that's what the picture is here, right? And there's fine vintage wine, verse 7. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheep covering all the nations. And this language is so beautiful. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. And he will remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. That reminds you guys of anything? End of the book of Revelation, right? He will wipe every tear from their eye. On that day, verse 9, it will be said, Look, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the Lord's power will rest on this mountain. Beautiful. However, there's a dark side to salvation, right? Because not everybody receives it. Not everybody even wants to go to Mount Zion. Not everybody wants to turn to the Lord. And so then we have this reference, this but, but Moab, which we didn't read this section. There's an entire pronouncement against Moab. Um, they're a, kind of a, 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 an icon of pride and self-security and self-reliance. Uh, and so Moab will be trampled in its place as straw is trampled in a dung pile. His pride will be brought low. Verse 12, the high-walled fortress will be brought down to the ground to the dust. 
then we get to chapter 26. I so wish we could walk through this. It's so beautiful. It really talks about like what is the um, what is the defining characteristic of the people who are in Mount Zion, who have entered the established city. And what you find is that it's faith. These are people who, who trust God. They, they have minds that are dependent on the Lord. Um, and, and so that's the point that is being made there, is that faith is so central to, um, to life in Zion. Now, I'm not going to read all these verses, but it's interesting. If you got a chance to read it on your own, in chapter 26, the people are waiting, all right? So they're, they're, they're pictured as in Mount Zion, but they're waiting for the day of the Lord to be fully done, I guess you could say. And so there's a lot of language here where they're lamenting. Like they kind of go back and forth from rejoicing what the Lord's going to be doing and lamenting um, the, the, the reality of, of what's going on right now. And I want to read you just one little passage that I think is so vivid. Um, chapter 26, verse 16. It says, Lord, they went to you in their distress. They poured out whispered prayers because of your discipline fell on them. And this is the metaphor that, I mean, it's so vivid. As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pains, so we were before you, O Lord. We became pregnant. We writhed in pain. I mean, the only thing that makes all that pain worth it is you get a baby at the end, right? You get a baby at the end. And he says, we gave birth to wind. We have won no victories on the earth, and the earth's inhabitants have not fallen. And I just think this is so important. And I, one thing I'm trying to do is figure out how to embrace the, the spirit and the mindset of Isaiah, because Isaiah was just so good at living in the tension of what God has promised to do in the future and, and what he's doing right now. Because the reality is we have these precious promises about a new heaven and a new earth and a future with God. And, um, and, and of course, the, those, those, those future promises, they break through in the present. We have little glimpses of them. We have tastes of them because Jesus has come. His kingdom is being established even now, right? However, we do not live in heaven. We do not live in the new creation. We do not live in the new Jerusalem. And so we have to learn how to live our lives as the people of God in this world as it is right now. And Isaiah was just, well, I'm, I'm becoming, the more time I spend with him, I'm like, what a genius at that. We're in one, one, you know, four lines over here. He's just rejoicing in what's to come and what God is doing. And he's so full of hope, but he is not pie in the sky. I'm too blessed to be stressed. You know, like, it's okay. Jesus is on the throne. Why are you sad? Why? Are... You need a smile. You ever come to church and, and some, usually the old men, they're like, did you leave your smile at home? And I'm like, I did actually. My smile was left like 50 miles down the road. Thank you very much. That's why I need to be here. Isn't that where you're supposed to go when you lost your smile? Did you don't go to church, right? But, um, I just, I feel like Isaiah would never tell someone to find their smile. He would, he would tell someone, behold your God. 
behold your God, because sometimes we lose our smile because this life is so hard. And you feel like I have labored. I have labored like a woman who is in labor, trying to give birth to a child. And what do I have to show for it? Nothing. And like Isaiah felt all of that. He felt that in his time. He felt that on a national level, an international level, and I'm sure on a personal level as well, considering the fact that the dude was called to preach to people who God said, I'm going to blind and I'm going to make them deaf and they're not going to respond to you and they're not going to want to hear what you say. So man, I just, I want to get better at living in the tension of what I know God has promised and who I know God is and who I know what he's going to do and the reality of, okay, but we've got to live in this world as it is today. And I don't have any like, here's three points on how to do that. I don't, I like, we just need to, we need to work that out. I want you to be looking for that. I'm going to be looking for that too. As we go throughout our studies, I wonder, like, how did Isaiah get to that place where he was so confident in the promises of God, but he was so realistic? And I think that's one thing that people are, like, not attracted to Christians because they just look so stinking fake. You cannot, I mean, I know you're happy in the Lord, but you know what? It's okay to be sad. That's why there's, like, so much lament in the Bible. And you come to church, all our praise songs are happy, everything's great. No, it's not. We don't even know how to lament. Nobody teaches that class, right? We got a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. Why do you think that is? Because God knew we need to learn how to do that, <laughs> right? I feel like Isaiah was just, oh, it's just so strong in his faith and yet realistic. I love it, it's beautiful. Um, All right, so let's go ahead. We'll end with this. Chapter 27. It says, on that day, the Lord with his... (laughs) I love... Okay, I'm wordy. I like word vomit all the time. And so when I see the authors of scripture word vomiting, I'm like, yes, it's okay to do. He uses three adjectives to describe this sword. On that day, the Lord, with his relentless, large, strong sword, will bring judgment on Leviathan. And then he called he, he, all these other adjectives to describe the Leviathan. The, the fleeing serpent, fleeing would be reference to like aerial power, the sky, he's flying serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent or coiling, so he's on the ground. And he will slay the monster that is in the sea. So we've got air, we've got ground, we've got sea. And this creature, Leviathan, there's other times that it's mentioned in Scripture. It basically um, is the great forces of evil that God is going to subdue in the last days. So, so Satan and everything he represents would be included in this reference to Leviathan. And of course, we know that evil has infiltrated every square inch of God's world. And it is going to be removed from every square inch of God's world in the last days. Um, the, the poem goes on. I don't, if you remember the vineyard poem in chapter 5 is very depressing, is the stinky grapes. Uh, the people of God have just become stinky, rotten grapes. We have another vineyard poem here, and it is a beautiful, beautiful vineyard. Um, it is a desirable vineyard. 
verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and bloom and fill the whole world with fruit. So we have the whole world returning to this Eden-like state, which is so, so beautiful. All right, verse 12. 12 and 13 will bring us to the end of our reading for this week. It says, On that day, the Lord will thresh grain from the Euphrates River as far as the wadi of Egypt, and you Israelites will be gathered one by one. On that day, a great ram's horn will be blown, and those lost in the land of Assyria will come, as well as those dispersed in the land of Egypt will come, and they too will worship the Lord at Jerusalem on the holy mountain. And so what do we have here? Well, that ram's horn is the the jubilee trumpet that was blown on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 25.9. What we have here is the eternal worldwide worship of the one true king. We have the remnant being gathered from Israel and Judah, and we have the remnant being gathered from the Gentile nations of the world, and they are coming together. We call that the church. They are coming together to worship the one true king, whose name is Jesus, forever and ever and ever in the new heaven and the new earth, because the day of the Lord is done, and God will establish his throne, and all of his promises will come to pass. Why? Because God's plans don't fail. Because God's plans don't fail. So just a beautiful poem. And we're not even in the, like, really hopeful part of Isaiah yet, you guys. We don't get there until chapter, you know, 40. So there's some, I mean, if you have eyes to see it, there's some really good stuff in here. And so I hope you are encouraged by that. I'm sorry I went long tonight. I knew I would. I went long on Tuesday as well. Um, I always struggle. It's hard for me to skip chapters. Really hard. Pray for me because I have to do it a lot with this study. But um, any questions before? Yes. 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 So there, that is a very big question. Um, I'm trying to think if I should even attempt to answer it right here. Yeah, let me come back to you with, I'll, I'll get you some information on that. I feel like if I try to answer it here, it would be, because it's, yeah, I don't even think, I personally don't think that's who the sons of God are, but there are people who, yeah, the line of Seth is presented as godly, but there's, there's views that there was an ungodly line of Seth. So I'll get you the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, you want to just, for kicks, have some fun, study the different views of what the, who the sons of God are. It is quite the adventure. Yes. Everywhere I read, it didn't seem to explain that as a figurative thing. Now, I would imagine maybe it was in certain times and in places. But yeah, I mean, talk about commitment. And of course, we have to, culturally, I mean, you get arrested if you did that today. Obviously, the <laughs> culture is a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. It is very, I know. I read that. I was like, what? And then I thought, well, maybe it doesn't mean naked. And then it was like buttocks exposed. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's naked. That's like legit naked. Your buttocks is exposed. So, yeah. He was a nudist for a few years with the call of God. All right. 
Any, any other questions? Yeah, it really bothered me to not cover that chapter. It's really, like, really interesting, actually. Anything else? All right, so I'm going to write a note. I'm coming back with some line of Seth, sons of God. All right. All right, well, let me pray. And then those of you who have children that have to be picked up, um, you have about five minutes. Otherwise, you can hang out. Let me do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you so much again for this reminder of who you are and that you are sovereign and you are God of the entire world. And you do have a plan. You have a plan that's been planned. (laughs) I keep thinking that you don't just have a plan. You have a plan that's been planned, Um, a plan that's been purposed. Uh, And I just pray that you'd help us to stay mindful of that. Lord, uh, you know, we're not leaving here with any profound conclusions uh, or action steps or a 10-step plan on how we can learn to live in the tension of what we know is to come and what, um, what is true of our life here right now. Um, but I pray as we walk through this study and as we, we come to know Isaiah better and we come to um, be more familiar with his, his words and as we take in his message, I pray that you would begin to reveal to us how we might Um, better live in that tension, how we might be women of faith who um, are so confident in who our God is and what he's going to do, but are also able to weep over the realities of life, that we are women who are um, capable of lament, uh, weep for ourselves, but also weep with others, um, to uh, just be able to articulate the, the sorrow and the suffering and the realities of life here, um, but frame it all with the hope, the ultimate hope that we have in Christ. Um, that is not an easy thing to do. And, and I just, I, I pray that you would continue to um, form that in us uh, as we walk through this study together. And we just thank you so much for what you've taught us tonight. And we, we thank you for Jesus. And it is in his precious, matchless name that we pray these things. Amen.